This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 259 today. Uh, we are joined by friend of the show, Laura Taboni. Um, we've had her on a few times. You can go check out those episodes. I have the links down below. We did actually a slideshow episode, and we discussed um, Malta and the, the Maltese megaliths because she is she lives on Malta, which is amazing. Um, and you can check all those links down below. I have... Um, I have her links to her YouTube channel. Please go follow that and subscribe. Uh, that's Megalith Hunter. Um, she's on Instagram and also on Twitter. Um, so please go check that out. And uh, yeah, before we get started here, you, if you want to support Mind Escape, uh, please click on the link tree uh, link down below. We have merch. We've got Patreon. I, we've done Patreon episodes with uh, Laura. Uh, as as well as many other um, people into ancient mysteries and megaliths and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of amazing guests on there. Uh, so go check that out. And the easy way to support the show would just be to go on to Apple Podcast or Spotify and leave us a five-star review. I really appreciate that. So, um, And uh, Shane is at Wounded Warrior, so he'll be back. And then Maurice will be back. And we have Rick Strassman on the show on the 30th. So... Welcome back on the show, Laura. How are you? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm really good, thank you. So it's been a little bit. We tried to get this in before, but I was having some sort of uh, internet connection issues when I moved. I've got that all figured out. Um, and last time, you know, we started talking about a couple different things. Uh, but I just want to say congratulations to you. You have recently been monetized on YouTube, which is a huge achievement. So congratulations there. Um, and please, everybody, go go check out Laura's channel. Run those numbers up for her. She's, she's, you know, she's put a lot of time and a lot of effort into this. So um, go do that. Uh, but, yeah, so congratulations. And why don't we start with the Olmec stuff? Because, you you know, I'm going to go through some of the videos you've made recently one that really caught my mind uh, or caught my attention 
was uh, this Olmec rituals associated with psychedelics and possibly 5-MeO DMT. Let's let's mm-hmm. jump into that. Yeah, sure. So I wanted to do, um, so as you know, from the beginning of Megalithanta, I was doing a lot of videos on Malta because I live there. And I wanted to feature pl- the place where I lived and where I could actually visit the sites, film the sites, take photographs of the sites. But then I realized that realistically, you have to touch on other topics because as interesting as Malta is, there is a broader ancient megalithic landscape that needs to be explored. And there's a lot of cultures that came before and came after the megalith builders that are also very interesting within the whole context of trying to understand what the megalith builders motivations were. So I kind of pivoted my channel from focusing just on Malta to looking at many other places, which unfortunately I cannot afford to visit. But there's plenty of information online. There's lots of peer reviewed journals. There's lots of interesting books. So, and where I can, I feature photographs or video footage if it's open source. So, so I started to feature quite a number of different places. And I was reading about the Olmecs, the first high civilization of uh, South America. And I was thinking, wow, this is so interesting. Like, I didn't know much about about the Olmecs um, and all of the the interesting kind of symbolism they left behind. And once I started to look into the symbolism, I realized that they featured the um, Sonoran toad a lot as as an engraving or a painting on pottery. Um, They actually made vessels shaped like this toad. And they also found the remains of this toad at various Olmec sites. So that led a lot of researchers to conclude that the toads were being used for the bufotenin, which is a psychoactive that they release. Okay, so it's not that the researchers are absolutely certain about this, but it's definitely a possibility, especially since with many later cultures in Central America, they were, were using a lot of different psychoactive substances in their rituals. That's fairly well attested, even in texts, foreign texts, as well as indigenous texts. So yeah, there's, so there's this kind of, um, so I found that really interesting. And obviously I knew you would love that, that part when I, when I added that into well, my video it, on the old. What really struck me about that though, is I've been told by a few different people that, you know, 5-MeO is, is a relatively new discovery or compound um, in terms of like, um, so, I mean, you can check out the Hamilton Pharmacopoeia episode, but supposedly the first person was, you know, in the eighties that kind of discovered, um, that the Colorado desert toad or the Bufo alivaris, uh, excretes, um, the five MEO from their glands, you know, as like a defense mechanism, uh, but some people, you know, they'll they'll catch them, they'll squeeze the glands, and then you dry it out, and that becomes what people, you know, smoke when they do the five meo ceremonies um. and everything like that. So, um, so I've been told that that wasn't by a lot of people that are into this topic that that's not, you know, an ancient thing. It's a more recent thing. However, I agree with you. I think it's interesting that they had these this toad symbolism. Um, and the pottery and the iconography. Um, but my question is, 
so is there an, another explanation though? Like, cause I, I want it to be that obviously that's awesome. But is it, is there some other explanation given? Like what was the more mainstream or is that the mainstream for the, no, that appears to be the mainstream conclusion actually. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't find any other explanation in the text I've read, although I haven't done an exhaustive search. Um, but yeah, I didn't find it because there was also some, um, a mask that was found, which looked like, um, what's that mushroom? The Amar, Amar, Amanita Mysterious. That's it. The one with the dots. On. Yeah. Um, and so there was even some idea that that might have meant they were also had the, the mushrooms within that, uh, culture. So, you know, it doesn't mean that just because they had the mushrooms, they had the toad poison, but it's, it's all very possible. Right. That they were well, connected. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it definitely makes sense. I mean, like you said, I mean, I've, this is something I've studied for a long time and most ancient cultures have ritual associated with entheogens or psychedelic, you know, use. So I don't see why it would be any different. I mean, we have the um, Vienna Codex from Mesoamerica that shows all the mushroom, sacred mushroom rituals and everything like that from um, the Toltecs and, um, you know, the uh, the Aztecs and everybody. So, I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, I, I'm, I'm all on board with that. I did read the paper after you made the video. And, yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like there was a lot going on there. Um but the you know there's one thing that that's interesting about the Olmecs and that's they we still don't really know a lot about them you know they have these large heads that i think most people are familiar with those stone heads uh that kind of look they're like the mesoamerican versions of uh easter island right like they kind of give you that vibe mm-hmm. um but yeah so like what's the dating uh, on the Olmecs do you know like a rough range. I cannot remember because yeah, it's a while it since I was doing that research. I have, um, hold on, I have some information. Let me see if I can pull it up here. So it first emerged in 1600 BCE. Okay. So, yeah. And I mean, like I always say, you need to understand when we're trying to understand ancient cultures, understanding what before and what came after is really important. And if there is evidence of the use of psychoactive substances in later cultures, where did they get the idea from? There's every reason why. There's every reason why they may have got it from the first high civilization of Mesoamerica. High meaning sophisticated, yeah. not not the other kind. Um, so I think I think it's entirely possible. And I mean, I even when I'm looking at sites within the Mediterranean, a lot of the time, these megalithic sites, they find, the archaeologists find really tiny vessels, which must have contained a precious substance. And since they were so small, it's very possible it was, well, alcohol or, or something that they only wanted to have in small doses for a ritual. These, these megalithic sites are known to be ritual sites. So even archaeologists put in a lot of papers that it's very possible that that's what these miniature vessels were for. I mean, when I say small, I mean really, really, really small. Right. So, yeah, the interesting thing I saw recently too, um, speaking about <clears throat> the uh, Mediterranean 
cultures and like the Eleusinian mysteries and all the mystery schools, you know, they keep finding these lizard bones in these vats that have all these other psychoactive uh, compounds in them. Uh, and I, I've read something recently that they think that some of the uh, species of lizards, there might be actually psychoactive compounds in their tails or something like that. I'd have to find this paper, but uh, that would make sense because I always thought it was more like a symbolic thing or kind of like a a witch's brew scenario, but I, mm-hmm. I think that there's a little bit more of a method to that madness uh, looking at it now. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. No, I haven't. Send me the link to the papers. I'll, I'll look into it. That's really yeah. interesting. And there was actually, there's like these large vats that were found um, near Pompeii um, that were sealed that had, you know, all sorts of tropanes and psychoactive compounds, you know, and they used Pharmacon, which was like medicated wine in ancient times to to induce these types of states. So, yeah, I'll send you the link to that, but I found that was kind of interesting. But, yeah, so the Olmec thing's interesting uh, for anybody that's... Um, wants to read more about this i'll try after we're done i'll add the uh the the academic paper um that laura um sourced all this stuff from so you can look at it um is there anything else you want to add to that that we didn't cover well just while we're talking about the olmecs one of the things i found really fascinating was that archaeologists discovered a mosaic they had created which had been then purposefully buried. So a beautiful mosaic that actually was never visible to the civilization that inhabited that particular area where it was found. And I thought, that's crazy because you find that at quite a few sites. Even in Malta, archeologists were excavating the Santa Verna temple in, um, in Goza a few years ago. It's just, um, there's just a few blocks left of the Santa Verna temple, it's not, there isn't as much remaining as there is of the Shara Stone Circle or the Gigantia temples, which are close by, because Santa Verona at one point, um, a church was built over the top. So it was reused in multiple periods. But anyway, underneath the ground, they found like a sort of small polygonal wall, mm. which had been tiled with a specific limestone, which wasn't from the area. So it had been brought from somewhere else. It wasn't the same limestone that had been used to make the megaliths. And it was just this tiny polygonal wall um, stuck to, like, more like a cover, stuck to um, the foundation wall, and then it was buried. Hmm. Why go to so much detail if it's only going to be buried? So archaeologists think that it was probably symbolic in some way, or some part of a foundation ritual, like when ritual deposits are placed into the threshold of a building, which is very common in many cultures all over the world. Um, so that's something I really, yeah, I, I love finding those little things because it was just mentioned and no one thought it was weird. It was just a, like a side note. And I thought that that's crazy. Why would they go to so much effort and then bury it? Something so beautiful, something yeah. that has no structural structural function. It must be because there was some kind of foundation rituals and foundation rituals have an, a hugely ancient history that you find them all over the place, these ritual deposits. So, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've been noticing a lot of like mosaics um, being found recently, um, either Roman ones in, you know, the UK mm-hmm. or um, even Roman ones in the, you know, 
Mediterranean areas. So very interesting yeah. and they're beautiful. Um, and they still kind of hold their, their color and their, their vibe once they get them all cleared off, you know, all this stuff. I don't, have you ever seen that, <clears throat> uh, Werner Herzog, <clears throat> excuse me, Werner Herzog documentary cave of forgotten dreams about the Shavi cave. Um, no. definitely check that out. I just watched it. Uh, it's really awesome about, um, you know, those cave paintings that were from 30,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. That cave was like sealed in and perfectly uh, sealed based on this like rock wall falling over the entrance and everything like that. So there's just a lot of things that came together to preserve that site. Um, and only like the scientists were allowed and Werner Herzog had, you know, had like a small, small team that was allowed there. And they were only allowed in there for like an hour and there's a limited amount of oxygen because of the CO2 from the um, the tree roots above. And there's just like a whole lot of things going on there. But very, very interesting. I highly recommend people check that out if you haven't already. Um, well, I did a, a video on if on that. I'm not sure if you saw it. But they there is a research paper a few years ago which says that um, one of the paintings looks as if it was done over the top of a previous earlier painting and that yeah. earlier painting depicted a volcanic eruption yeah they so, they talk about that in there because there's I a think that's crazy i mean they can tell the age because of the calcite deposits like it preserved the mm. painting so they can tell like in the layers like there was some that were drawn over like stenciled over and then there was other things drawn over too so yeah pretty pretty fascinating um, just imagine their faces because i mean <laughs> You're just trying to think how they, how the the ancient inhabitants of that area felt when a volcano erupted, because it would they wouldn't see so many within their lifetime. Right. So it must have come as quite a shock. It must have been quite a frightening. And is there even that much volcanic activity near France? I mean, I. Well, not really, not anymore. Um, But the volcano that they think was depicted in the Paleolithic period did erupt. They found the date correlated with, with when the painting was done, so it makes sense. So, yes. And that was like the hunter-gatherer period, so that must have been quite something right. to witness. Um, all right. Let's talk about the 9,000-year-old submerged megalith in the Sicilian Channel, because I find that very interesting. And you, you know, you live on Malta, which isn't too far from there. Um, how how deep and what what kind of structure are we looking at here so the um this was quite a few years ago it was in the news i read about it found it very interesting but i I didn't have my channel then so recently i thought let me revisit that because it's it's fascinating there is a paper on it but it's not terribly detailed i mean the researchers found a megalith uh i can't remember how long it how long it was i did put all the details in my video, but it is a substantial monolith that looks like it's artificially shaped with drilled holes in it, just like you get holed men here's mm-hmm. across Europe. And the diver researchers were quite convinced that it was artificial. Mm-hmm. But of course, this cannot be um, concluded with any certainty without further investigation. Um, now, its depth and location is in an area called the Pantelleria um, Vecchia Bank. So this bank would have been above water around 10,000 years ago. Mm. 
or 11,000 years ago even. At the end of the last ice age. Yeah, so it the water obviously didn't rise mm-hmm. super quickly. It took time and um, researchers have mapped how the sea levels rose in the Mediterranean and which, um, which pieces of land were still above water at that time. So of course, um, during the ice age, Sicily was a lot larger Malta and Goza were joined together, and Malta was was joined to Sicily by a land bridge. At the time when this monolith, artificial or not, would have been above water, the bridge, the land bridge would, was gone. Though Malta and Goza were already separate, Sicily was smaller, but there were little um, islands, extra islands, still within the channel, which are no longer there, which have sub- been submerged since then. And this would have been on this sort of island called the which has been called the Pantelleria Vecchia Bank after the island of Pantelleria which is nearby. Um, now it doesn't make a lot of sense for a few reasons. Mainly the Sicily doesn't really have any megaliths, very few. There wasn't the sort of sophisticated megalithic culture present in the Neolithic that Malta has. Now, if you want to say, okay, but maybe this megalith was an extension of the culture that was based on Malta at the time. Well, actually, this is much earlier than that. Malta wasn't inhabited until 8,000 years ago. And this megalith would be a couple of thousand years older than that. So, so what culture did it belong to if it was there? Unless... So yes, there, the, there is proper research into it. Um, these are academics that put together a paper analyzing it and suggesting that it's, that it's artificial and that it's very ancient. But there's a lot of argument against it as well because it doesn't make a lot of sense within what we know about the megalithic cultures in the Mediterranean at the time. Mm. So it's quite a mystery and you know I love my mysteries. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, the men here things interesting too. And then you see, I don't know if you see, I always post there's a a French um, account. Some they make like they have like French postcards on Twitter of all the the dolmens and the um, men here's. Yeah, and I follow them. Yeah, yeah, and I always love those because those are like classic pictures where I mean, you can clearly see that these huge huge stones are being moved around and france i think is kind of underrated for all their megalithic structures too right like all the i mean yeah you have karnak and you have those tombs that are pretty old but um yeah i don't think it gets enough love right yes there are tons in france it's definitely on my list i mean just where karnak is karnak obviously comprises thousands of standing stones but that that's not that's not it. It just that area has so much else, and it's uh, it's mind blowing. And it's all within villages that have been built since then, a bit like Avebury in, in England. So yeah, like I think that you can't walk anywhere without coming across some sort of megalith or tomb or tumulus. 
I, I really want to go there and just explore the people that live there must get so annoyed people just um, imagine you're following a, a line and then you're like oh the line stopped i think it's in that person's garden i bet they get people looking over their fences and everything because i don't think they're all demarcated as um as protected public property i think they're, they're literally everywhere so some must fall on private property as well what about by you and malta do people get aggravated when people come to check out the megaliths there you get people staring at you a lot. Like when I go to the ones that are off the beaten track, so they're not, um, okay, some of them are protected and they're on like public land. So it's okay. But still, you see people farming the land in the area just staring at you. Like, why are you taking a photograph of that stone? <laughs> I just look at the cart ruts, so many cart ruts in there. there a lot of those are off the beaten track. Um, but then, Sometimes I'll read about ones that are on private property and I know I cannot access it, but if there's a road nearby, I take pictures from the road hmm. of the stones. And people are just looking at me like it's, I'm the strangest person pulling over to take a picture of a field. But there are really good right. stones in there. And I mean, they don't do well on Instagram. I don't get many likes for my random stones that aren't part of picturesque, um, more complete structures. But I like For them. me, it's like a database of, of all the ones I can find. Yeah. No, and again, please follow Laura on Instagram. She's got a great uh, channel on there, Twitter, and uh, I'm going to convince her to, to host a uh, Twitter space with me here soon. And shout out to Sandy. We'll get Sandy up in the mix. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be discussing all the mysteries. Uh, but, yeah, the Sicilian one is interesting obviously close to where i'm from my heritage in italy um and actually you mentioned the the land bridge connecting malta do you think when it was above um when it was above water the the water level was lower that maybe malta was like a a ritual site for more of the mainland um italy and and people like possibly just using that as more of like a, a ritualistic site or island or not island because obviously it was connected but just a a zone where people would go to as opposed to maybe living on um i do think it was a potentially a pilgrimage site for other cultures within the mediterranean although it's difficult because there's no evidence of that really it's not like you right. find pottery and say oh that looks like it came with a pilgrim from another island. Right. Um, but then again, amongst the Neolithic cultures, there wasn't so much difference um, in pottery, really, I guess. Early Neolithic pottery in Malta and Sicily was quite similar, which is why they think that the, the people that first inhabited Malta came from Sicily. But during the Ice Age, when the land bridge was present, there was actually no, there's no evidence for human habitation in Malta at that time during the time of the land bridge, there was only um, settlements within Sicily. Hmm. So at that point, I don't think there was any um, communication between the two places, except for animals. <laughs> There's lots sure. of uh, foreigner which made its way over to Malta and then became isolated as the waters rose. But, but during the later period when they were separated, it could well be that people visited from other areas because... Like I always say, why, I why did Malta have this sophisticated culture that just seemed to flourish from nowhere and to be quite different to anywhere else? But then 
Um, and then you have obviously a, a pretty sophisticated culture on Sardinia in the Neolithic as well, but theirs was, their architecture was all funerary in nature rather than rituals of the living, which Malta appears to have like a bit of both. But then Sicily had nothing and there's not a great deal in Southern Italy either. So it makes you, I always say you need to look at where I didn't have them rather than where I did have them to kind of try and understand what was going on back then. Because hmm. it, Sa- it seems really disconnected to me. You've been to Sardinia um, and you've done some videos mm. on it recently. Uh, obviously you have the Naragi culture, which has a lot of similarities to other uh, Mediterranean cultures in terms of like the uh, iconography and the statues and things like that. But then you also have, I guess my question is like the landscape. I know Sicily is kind of like, you know, dry and barren in, in a lot of spots. Is Sardinia, is it green and lush or like, is it, is it more hospitable? Like what's going on there? No, they're quite similar. Really. Similar. They've got a lot of, They've got like a, a mountainous landscape um, and lots of fertile ground. It's a lot drier than it was, though, in right. earlier times. Um, but still, they have rivers and lakes and stuff that Malta doesn't have. Gotcha. So, I mean, it's definitely, they're both quite a bit wetter and definitely would have been both of them hospitable during the Neolithic. The Neuragic culture in Sardinia is later, it's Bronze Age. The buildings are not so megalithic really, but they are still quite complex and nobody knows what they were for. Um, And it seems there was cultural continuity in Sardinia between the Neolithic um, period where, where the inhabitants of the island built underground necropolis called um, Domus Tejanus with lots of symbolism and painted horns and engraved horns and things. And the later Neuragic culture who just built thousands of towers for no obvious reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but so Sardinia has been pretty heavily inhabited by sophisticated cultures for a long time. Sicily, there's just not much until the classical period really. And yeah, I'm always looking, maybe we got something wrong. That's why I went to Sicily last week. I've been a couple of times this year actually. And I was having a look at um, the classical period buildings and, you know, just looking to see if there's any kind of indication that there was something earlier that maybe someone's missed. But it doesn't really seem like there is, apart from a couple of dolmens. And I mean, literally, I think there's five dolmens and a few interesting tombs. Um, in what caves. about stuff like underground, um, though? Because I think like, you know, um, is there like any excavation or digging going on there? Because... Um, in terms of like looking for that kind of stuff, because I, I feel like when they found all the megaliths on Malta, were they underground or were they just standing there? Kind of. No, thing? they were sticking out. Yeah, they were so, quite well known. They so were guess, covered in soil, but so like maybe they, they there's more. Yeah, maybe there's more erosion or more um, coverage on Sicily. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they need to do a little bit more digging or something like that. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Because there is like a serious missing link here, in my opinion. What about uh, on Sardinia, that Santa, is it Santa Cristina or Cristiana? Mm, Do you know Santa what I'm talking Christina. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, it goes like down. It's kind of like a keyhole shape 
thing. It kind of mm. reminded me of the tombs that they do in Japan. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Ah, the keyhole tombs. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't that kind of give you that but same on kind a of smaller a smaller scale? Yeah. It yeah. really does. It really does. I'm. That is quite crazy. I mean, they're totally different time periods, but supposedly. Right. But um, but they're very similar in architecture. Yeah, different time periods, vibe. different sizes. But yeah, I thought that that they're not all keyhole shaped in Sardinia. I think these sacred wells. There's about seventy of them, um, mm. but a few a few of them are, have that kind of distinctive keyhole shape. Yeah, I know. Um, also, there's a lot of people that speculate. You know, you know how I feel about Atlantis. You can go back and watch all the stuff. Yeah, we've talked about. <laughs> but uh, a lot of people associate Sardinia with possibly being Atlantis too, with the whole all the megalithic um, structures and the circle concentric circle structures and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, have you when you go, went there? Was there anybody talking about that or any kind of a vibe about that? Or no, not really. Nobody's making those connections no not really i read um some newspaper reports from this journalist italian journalist that has that is quite convinced that sardinia was atlantis i did a video on that and um he thinks that in the south it's quite clear there was a tidal wave that covered the south and it left a lot of sediment um and he thinks that and he changed the dating of when that would have happened so it would be more recently so atlantis was a more recent kind of lost civilization right. i don't know none of it really holds up to scrutiny <laughs> but i don't think that he's done any academic research on it I, I believe there was supposed to be a whole team doing something based on that and there was a press conference years ago but i've never seen anything come out of it yeah um but it and then of course there's some I think there was some etymological connections as well because of the connection with, of Sardinia with other cultures. But honestly, it's it's difficult to follow any of it, really. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't think that Sardinia can be Atlantis because um, Malta, Malta was, so, you know. Right. Obviously. Um, no, I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I again, you can go back and watch my takes on that. Um, let's talk about precision astronomy, um, or astronomical alignments. You did a video, um, that like 8,000 years ago that this was happening. Can you describe that a little bit and go into a little bit more depth with that? Yeah. So I was looking at the, um, Alamandris Cromlech in Portugal. So I'm aware that the megalithic structures on the Atlantic coast of Iberia and France are very ancient. They're, I mean, they really are thought to be much older than the than the um, stone circles in Scotland, which are obviously going back to three and a half thousand, um, five and a half thousand years ago, same as the Maltese temples approximately. And I just thought, wow, because those structures in Iberia and France, so I looked at Karnak and I looked at the Cromlech of Almendras, they are both pretty extensive complexes. And many researchers have found alignments and more than just your standard solstice equinox, which always gets talked about, they found other alignments as well. So we could be looking at actual observatories, um, observing lunar phenomena, observing stellar phenomena, observing solar phenomena. And I just think that's, that's crazy because a lot of these um, cosmological cycles would have taken place over many years. So it means that generations are passing on that information for observation. Mm -hmm. um, 
for that accuracy to be there. Now, I can't comment too much on the details of the papers because I'm not an Arcure astronomer. And I do think I need to really learn that skill before I can comment. But at the moment, what I do is I at least report on what I find. And if these uh, researchers are correct, then we're looking at something very interesting going on in the ancient past. I would be willing to say they are observatories. It doesn't have to be something super mystical either. Why not? Why would they not be able to pass on the information over generations just because they didn't leave written text that we understand today? Right. Or, you know, maybe they had a written text or a way of recording it that we're just not Well, maybe the stones were the way of recording it. I don't know. And um, it's entirely possible. Why not? And it could be, might not be for mystical reasons, it could be for entirely practical ones to do with the passing of the years, to do with um, understanding um, when seasonal variability was going to take place or when a certain cycle might happen that could lead to famine, whatever. Maybe they understood much broader cycles than than we think they did. Hmm. Um, but it could also be, I mean... I've been reading a lot about ancient Egypt lately and no one really knows where that sky earth cosmology came from. It was extremely sophisticated and it's thought to be rooted in the, in the lives of the desert people when the desert was greener. You know, you've got Nabtaplio in the stone circle and it does look like that had certain astronomical alignments. So it's very possible that the sky earth cosmology started quite early on. Um, by pastoralists when the desert was greener before they moved into the Nile Valley. But then all of a sudden you've got something incredibly sophisticated taking place. And I, I don't know, I, I wonder, could it be that in ancient times, even in the Neolithic uh, across Europe, there was some sort of rudimentary sky earth cosmology um, in existence? And it doesn't necessarily mean that all these cultures were connected. It could be that it was just a natural stage in, um, in cultural evolution that people were realized the importance of life and the life-giving attributes of the sun and of water as they built up a whole cosmology around it and did lots of uh, practices related to it. Because also, it, as, I, as I always say, and I did like a dissertation on um, ancient rituals, people, people always um, try to domesticate chance they try to control their environment and when there's something that you don't completely understand your people use rituals whether it be a lucky charm or whatever or a prayer to try to control their environment so it would make sense if some kind of sophisticated rituals were in place purposely for that Hmm. And yeah, I think I think it's all entirely possible. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the early Egyptian cosmology starts with everything coming from water or emerging from water, uh, mm -hmm. as well as a lot of all the other cultures. It's like, you know, we now know through evolution that a lot of the stuff evolved out of the water. But were they did they have some sort of inkling of that or was it just more instinctual you know i always think about that like what did they really know um about what they were writing down and, and discussing back then and how much of it plays into what we know now or was it completely different you know that's something i think about a lot yeah, um totally but yeah I, I always have you ever read um 
Martin Sweatman's Prehistory Decoded on Gobekli Tepe and um, the alignment, yes, the astronomical. I, I read his. I read the paper, and I also read the refutal by the academics <laughs> of the paper. Yeah. Yeah, there's that one guy that runs that YouTube channel that tries to debunk anything that might have any sort of yeah. uh, mystical or metaphysical. Uh, attributes what's that guy's name i can't think of it right now but but martin he wrote that and i mean i read it i thought this is quite interesting but the first question i had was if you say that um all this symbolism on this pillar represents these uh an early zodiac then it has to apply to all the other enclosures and all the other symbols and it doesn't yeah. really and then i found um a refutal paper by the actual academics that work on on the site oh okay so, so you're talking about the, the, there's a guy jens norgren or something like that there's a guy that's on twitter i can't that... remember who wrote it but i'll send you the link but okay. he basically or it was a team of them they they refuted all the points within the same journal yeah. um and sort of gave their opinions on it um and went kind of point by point so it's very interesting to read both of those definitely there's something there obviously there's something interesting that was going on there um, but it's hard to come up with a really conclusive idea that, that is, is not subject to a lot of scrutiny because, mm. I mean, there's so much variability within the site itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm open-minded about it. You know, I, I look at all the academic stuff. Obviously I've looked at all the fringe stuff and all the interesting, uh, elements of that. Um, but I mean, you know, until it's completely excavated and until, you know, they look at Carahan Tepe and all the other surrounding sites and kind of look, maybe get a more broader view of what was going on in that area at the time. Uh, I think we, you know, should all just reserve uh, our speculations until there's more stuff out there. But it's fun, right? It's fun to speculate. It's fun to... I like to speculate. We can. We're we're not academics. We could do as we like. That's right. That's right. (laughs) I mean... This is the thing. I, I really appreciate um, people like Martin putting the effort into writing those papers because it opens your mind. It explores certain areas. It gets you thinking in ways that you might absolutely. not have before. So why not? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm completely um, I'm in favor of that. You know, like as long as nobody's too dogmatic either way. I know academics tend mm. to get dogmatic about their own positions and they've spent their lives on this, but they're just human beings too that have cognitive biases like everybody else and pareidolia and lots of other things so i think it's important to keep that oh yeah i desperately want like to look at something like avebury and stonehenge and picture this incredibly complex ritual landscape that these people lived in a golden age and they knew things that we don't even know today Right, but it could have just been a like a, a restaurant. Or like, I'd be so disappointed if I found out it was just a Neolithic restaurant. <laughs> like that, that's it. And they just made it really pretty uh-huh. because they were competing with the restaurant down the road. Right. Yeah, that would be that would be so disappointing. Hey, I mean, but we we know that they were making beer in ancient Egypt. We know they were making beer at Gobekli Tepe. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like things like that are very fascinating. Um, and obviously the dawn of uh, civilization slash agriculture and all that kind of stuff has always fascinated me. And I don't know if you ever think about this, but like we've domesticated a bunch of different animals now, but 
you know, people say that we've domesticated ourselves. My question is when and why did that happen? Did we domesticate ourselves because we became hyper aware of super volcanoes and uh, ends of ice ages and floods and things like that? And we decided maybe it's not the best idea to keep moving around uh, nomadically and maybe we should plant some roots and fortify ourselves in some kind of way or prepare for these things i don't know these are just speculations but um and i I read once it wasn't even an easier life for us once we did once the agricultural revolution took place we kind of think oh it must have been easier but i read something about um, an anthropologist wrote it and they they assigned points um I'm talking about something that I read about about five, ten years ago. So, like, sorry, it won't be super accurate. But basically, they assign points about, uh, they say humans naturally want to do, to use less energy. And if you assign points to different periods in history and you look at how much energy they used based on that, the sort of sophistication of that culture, let's say, we actually ended up not being better off nutritionally or in terms of the energy expenditure after the agricultural revolution. And anthropologists are fully aware of this and think it's a strange thing that then we continue down that tra- trajectory. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's questionable. Interesting. Yeah. I'll send one... you the, the book. I'll find it and I'll yeah, send yeah. you the picture of the front of it. So you yeah, know what so I'm talking about. Send it my way. Um, let's see here. You did a video on how Cahokia was not a meeting place. Can you Mm. tell us what's going on there? Yeah, so this um, team of archaeologists took sediment samples from the, not all of the plazas surrounding it, but just the north plaza. And they found it was actually underwater during the time Cahokia was in use. So then their, their natural suggestion from that was, well, maybe all the plazas were underwater. So they weren't the area where people were meeting. Hmm. The, main, the main mound had some sort of significance, um, but it wasn't surrounded by meeting places as was originally thought. And I mean, this keeps, this is obviously a thing with mounds, isn't it? You've got like Silbury Hill in England, which is a very marshy landscape. And when you even drive past it, you see often it's in the winter, it's surrounded by water. Um, The primordial mound coming up from the water, that's what I always think, which is in all these ancient religions. Right. And, And a lot of artificial mounds appear to have been surrounded by water. So it just sort of bolsters that idea that for a long time, for thousands of years, in many different cultures, in different parts of the world, the idea of a primordial mound was celebrated emerging from the water, hmm. as humans once did, like you say. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that, too. So obviously we have all the Native American mounds of North America, and actually there's mounds in South America as well. Um, and the interesting thing to me is there's also mounds in the U.K., um, I know there's that movie too that came out recently where that woman found her found a Viking um, burial on her property. I forget. I'm forgetting the name mm. of the movie. Uh, I recommend people check. You mean it out. the one about the the uh, Sutton Who? Yes. Yes. 
the anglo-saxon uh, masks and all that yeah yeah so so those were mounds too so like what's the connection there is that just something that human beings were doing and maybe some sort of collective unconscious or something like that or you know do you know what i'm saying like because there was already pyramids built at that time so why were why were the mounds going on both in the uk and in north america and south america and if there was no connection between those cultures and across europe as well right I mean, mounds are literally everywhere. And okay, to some extent, I understand it when it's burial mounds, like the Etruscan Tumuli. All right, fine. Makes sense. They're quite similar to Kurgans that you get in Siberia as well, which are also circular mounds. All right, from a burial perspective, I can understand it. Because if it's above ground, it's easier to visit, to pay your um, respects to the ancestors. Right. It's easier to reuse it and keep adding people from the same tribe or clan or family as, you know, they pass. Um, but a lot of them are not burial mounds. I mean, certainly Silbury Hill isn't. It was right. just built for no obvious reason. <laughs> so I really do wonder about that. And then I wonder about all the, maybe the burial mounds were based on those other mounds that were being used for some sort of ritual. And I really do see this idea of a connection between these cultures. It doesn't have to be, but there could be because it's strange. Yeah. I mean, okay. So like the, the explanation usually for why pyramids were being built roughly at the same time on different continents and no connection between these cultures and different things is that, like I said, it's just the easiest, most logical next step forward to, to gain height and build up would be to build a pyramid or to build a mound. I don't like that answer. It just doesn't satisfy me. And I'm open to mainstream stuff. I'm open to fringe stuff. I love both. I think that there's truth obviously in uh, both of those things and i think that they tend to clash a lot of the times but at the end of the day it's like there's these certain things that like this mound thing or why pyramids were built um you know why why was this structure just the idea that oh it was just basic or that was the next logical step like that doesn't sit sit with me i don't know i mean i don't know how you feel about that but just this idea that you know that's just what people were doing um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I feel like there's got to be more to it. I understand the sort of monumentalization idea when it comes to tombs and king's tombs and tombs of important people. Right. But many buildings were not for that, or they haven't found burials within them. And that's certainly the case with many mounds. And, you know, you think, well, a mound and a pyramid, a pyramid take, is much more difficult to build. Actually, with many mounds, they move tons and tons of earth to create them. It wasn't that easy either. So there has to be some really big reason behind it. I don't know. I and and like like we were saying, the primordial mound, their proximity to water, the Cahokia research just seemed to back up that idea that they were trying to celebrate something to do with origins. And how they would know, I don't know. How would they know mm. that we originally came from what it's it's crazy. Yeah. And they, they there's walls around a lot of these too, made out of trees that uh took a lot of time and effort as well. Um actually if anybody's interested, we've done a few episodes with Dr. Gregory Little 
Um, one of them, we did a slideshow episode where we went through like all the Native American mounds in North America, or at least the most important ones. Um, and he's a wealth of knowledge on the topic. He actually wrote this huge book, uh, this illustrated book on all the Native American mounds, so people can go check that out for a resource. Um, and we, we discuss a lot of different stuff with him over the years, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's really good with all the ancient mound stuff and follow him on Twitter. Cause he's always posting, um, uh, native American mound stuff on there as well. But, uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, I do kind of want to get, do you have any more information on the, uh, the cave art depiction of the volcano? We were talking about Chave cave or Chave. Mm. Um, I think Warner Herzog calls it Chave. So I don't know if that's the, if it's Chave or Chave. I thought it was Chave in French, but yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. I haven't studied it since I was 16. He's German. So who knows what he's doing with it? Um, (laughs) but yeah, 35,000 years old or year old cave art depicting the volcano. And one thing I will say about that documentary that I found very interesting is these artists were trying to show motion in these, these cave, this cave art, they would stencil like outlines outside of, the, the lines of the animals to show some sort of motion almost like a um animation like pre-animation kind of a thing which i thought was very fascinating very advanced too um but yeah do yeah. you have any other information about the volcano aspect of that um well not really about Chave cave but i put in the same video about um Katalhoyuk in turkey the mm. early neolithic settlement because there's a mural there that appears to show um, a volcanic eruption on a twin peaked volcano that is located nearby. So it seems that there within that settlement, they were painting what they were seeing. And I just thought that's mental. <laughs> like imagine yeah. how did they not think maybe instead of painting it, we should move. I don't know. Right. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it tells you a little bit about what the society um, was experiencing at the time and how they reacted to such a disaster. Yeah, I mean, um, the volcano thing is always fascinating me. How come, you know, we always talk about floods and flood myths and all this other stuff, but super volcanoes and volcanoes have done some serious, serious damage to humanity. I mean, we're talking, you have the 74,000 year, uh, years ago, you have Lake Toba uh, in Indonesia, which caused, you know, a bottleneck where there was supposedly only 10,000 humans left. Um, you know, you have the New Zealand eruptions that caused, um, you know, weather to change, you know, a drop of six to 10 degrees is huge when you're talking about, uh, agriculture and things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I always wondered why the volcano thing didn't get more coverage in terms of, um, devastation and cataclysm and something that we should be more mindful of. Yeah. And they're everywhere. I mean, just driving through Sardinia, okay, it's a very ancient landmass. Probably, I think it's something like one of the oldest landmasses in the Mediterranean, mm. um, created from volcanic eruptions hundreds of thousands of years ago. So they've been extinct for a long time. So now it's all very green and lovely. Right. Um, whereas when you go to Etna, obviously it's not, it's quite, well, when you get up Etna, it's dark and it's, it's not a nice landscape it's dark it's foggy and it's like just this like brown soil everywhere um but when you go to extinct volcanoes that have been extinct for a very long time um they now make all these beautiful mountains just like scotland is made up of 
quite a few extinct volcanoes. And it just, I just can't get my head around it. I mean, I know the Earth has a very long history. And England was once a, a tropical, under a tropical ocean. So they find fish that are hundreds of millions of years old as well. Um, and you have, yeah, and it used to be closer to the equator. And yes, I know the Earth has been through all of this. But thinking about um, since, since humans have been around, uh, the amount of eruptions that have been and how much the landscape has changed is quite crazy. So Absolutely. people have witnessed quite some disasters. Yeah, um, we did a couple. We did a uh, multi-part series on super volcanoes. If anybody's interested, go back, go back and check those out. Because uh, I go through all of the super volcanoes across the globe, and then obviously Yellowstone and Lake Toba specifically, because they're huge and they're. <laughs> Yeah. Their impact is <laughs> is uh, been super massive, um, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we're discovering. I didn't even they can determine, you know, like w the direction in which some of these volcanoes um, erupt based on so like the iron that comes out in the rocks will settle towards the different magnetic points and things like that. So there's really a lot of interesting stuff that goes into figuring this stuff out. So again, go check those those episodes out. Um, I want to talk to you about this Armenian Stonehenge that was possibly 30,000 years mm -hmm. old. Um, what can you tell me about that? Well, that also doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. Um, as I say, I'm not an expert in archaeology astronomy, but a lot of researchers have said that it's it's quite tricky to, to give it these, um, to say that it had these alignments. Um, because it seems to be part of a much later Bronze Age necropolis based on the excavations. There's nothing really that dates it to that time. And when I just look on Google Earth and I look at the makeup of it and it's supposed to take the shape of like Cygnus as well, um, I don't know, I don't really see it. It, it depends which stars you're going to include, right? I mean, oh, and then what do you, how do you explain the anomalies? Well, you have and, to go back too, right? You'd have to use some sort of um, yeah. modeling of the procession at the time, you know, some sort of computer well, modeling of yeah, what the stars, the alignments and everything. They've used the, the modeling and everything, but I'm just saying there's um, so hundreds of standing stones there and they won't all fit the, the pattern regardless sure. of when you look at. So I think it's quite tricky to say that and there doesn't seem to be much support for that idea. Um but it is certainly a strange site. I mean, the, the, the carved holes, which um, some archaeologists think came later than when it was originally built. I mean, what was their purpose? You have holed megaliths everywhere. Even in Malta, mm. there's holed yeah. megaliths, which they call the oracle holes, but they don't know what they were for. Um, there's loads of men here across the UK which have the holes carved in, at, you know, at eye level, as if they were for viewing something. But no one knows exactly what they were for. So they're called oracle holes. Maybe there's like somebody standing on one side with their ear to the hole and everybody, some other, like, hey, this is what's going to happen. Well, that's, yeah. that's what they say in Malta, but it's just a name that's kind of caught on, but it's, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, what's, what's interesting you now? Like, what are you interested in now? Is there any mysteries that you've come across that are really anomalous to you or is there anything recently that you've been looking into that really kind of <laughs> piques your interest oh so many things 
but I'm pretty obsessed with the Cyclopean Wars in Italy mm. because I had read about them and I've seen them on YouTube and everything. But when I actually went to visit, I went to see a whole bunch on hilltops in March. Just I was staying on a, in a village called Veroli in the Apennine Mountains. So I was on this hill and it has one. And then driving from hilltop to hilltop. And I was just like, my goodness, I didn't know there were so many. I mean, there are tons. I've been plotting them all on a map. There are so many. And they're thought to be Roman, which makes sense because some of them are the foundations to Roman buildings, Roman road substructures, Roman fortifications. But there's also many reasons why that doesn't make any sense. For a start, the Romans talked extensively about their construction techniques and they never mentioned this particular one. And you often find the Cyclopean Wall right next to one with the square tufts, mm. which square tuft blocks, which is their regular um, building type. And I've gone through loads of magazines on archaeology, books, peer-reviewed journals written by archaeologists on construction techniques in ancient Rome. And this never comes up. No one seems to know, but they just say they're Roman. So... I don't know, like, you know, when you talk about potential, the possibility of a lost civilization, when you're driving around there looking at them, you do think, oh, there's something going on here. Well, what like, about what about the idea, though? So, like, we, we know the Greeks were there first, um, and the Greeks built Cyclopean walls. There's evidence that uh, Mycenae and Tyrans. Um, do you think that could have been left over from the Greeks, possibly? The Greeks, well, that's the problem. The according to archaeologists and academics, um, the Greeks came much later into Italy. So you had the Iron Age Villanovan culture, which then the Etruscans were descended from, and the other Iron Age cultures that inhabited the Italian peninsula. It was their descendants that then became the Italic tribes, which eventually became ancient Rome and Etruscan and, and all the other tribes that there were, the Henici, which eventually all got absorbed by Rome. Then the Greek colonists started to come later. So according to the mainstream record, the Greeks weren't there until much later. And the Roman legends about being descended from Trojans or Greeks is rubbish. They're just myths because they wanted to give themselves this kind of legacy but that but it doesn't match the language or the archaeological record the languages or the archaeological record the italic tribes did not come from greece the greek colonists came later um so that's where there's confusion now even within italy the legend has it within these hilltop towns that the cyclopean walls were built by the pelasgians and the pelasgians are seen as this very ancient Greek culture, pre the classical period, um, probably commensurate with the Bronze Age, with the Minoans and the Mycenaeans and all of that, or even before that. They're just seen as this mythical people that were kind of indigenous to Greece and mm. very early in Greece. But the archaeological record just doesn't support it. So that's why they keep saying they're Roman. But that, I just don't buy it. And after I've gone and had a look at them, it almost looks like the Romans just reused those structures later. Hmm. And there were loads of them, just so many. Yeah. Like, uh, I tried to plot it I got against where we know the Etruscan uh, settlements were, and it doesn't match that. It does sort of match the Roman settlements, but then not all of them. 
and there's none in actual Rome itself. So why would they build them all over the countryside and not in Rome, but they're not on the east coast, only on the west? Like, yeah. something's missing. And it's I've become a bit obsessed with it. Yeah. I just keep making like plans to see more of them. Yeah, I always thought the um, the Greeks were there on the west or the east coast of Italy. Um, not before, but um, based on, you know, like you get like the Eleatic school, which comes later, classical period, the pre-Socratic philosophers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before then, I mean, you have Magna Graecia and you have a lot of going back and forth in the Mediterranean there. Um, but yeah, I got to look into more of what you're saying though. Cause I was always under the assumption that the Greeks, since the Minoan and the Mycenaean times were going back and forth, but it would make sense that there was already indigenous Italian people there. Um, so they were trading with them, but only on a limited level. And that's what's so confusing. Um, well, that's what I always pictured is like the Greeks around the edge, you know, like on the coasts. And then there had to have been some sort of indigenous people um, on the mainland and the upper Italy and, and that kind of a thing. I mean, the Etruscans became very Hellenized. They were very influenced by the Greek colonists. Um, it, it's a strange one. I mean, I don't think they're Roman. If you go back and say, oh, well, the Greeks influenced, well, the Greeks just weren't in all those places, well, even after they colonized certain areas. So it must be a much in my opinion, a much earlier Greek migration, something even Bronze Age, but there just isn't any evidence for it. Like they just can't find anything in the archaeological record that supports early, much earlier colonists um, bringing that technology that is all over, well, it's all over Greece and Anatolia. So right. I don't know. It's strange to me. I don't know why we can't say there is a connection or yeah. why they can't find any link um unless there was another place where this technology kind of came from that hasn't kind of been discovered yet or it's been missed and then it kind of passed to both those places separately but that would be crazy because you'd you would have noticed these walls are pretty obvious right right (laughs) they're very obvious i mean when i arrived in this one hilltop town of alatri and we were just driving up the hill and I was really excited. My dad said, send me pictures when you see the walls. <laughs> see how sad we are. Like, this is... <laughs> so everybody's like, staring at you. You're taking pictures. Of... Yeah, you're taking pictures of oh, rocks. And everybody's staring at you. And there's one that's like right outside the main gate. And I was just like, <gasps> jump out the car, take a picture. It's covered in signs and electric wires. It's not even the ones that are like labeled to go and actually look at as a tourist right. um, they're not the pretty ones but i was just like i wanted every single wall <laughs> so in my in my camera because like the mycenaean and uh tyrans um roughly 1600 bc how old do you think that these italian um cyclopean walls are well i don't know I mean, they say they're Roman and they're probably first century Roman. So quite late on, actually, in the Roman era. But I personally think there could be any age. I mean, even I was just going down a hill. I went to Castel San Pietro, which is this on the top of a hilltop, tiny village near the much bigger town of Palestrina, where there's quite a lot of walls. And on the way down, just going around a bend, I, I saw another wall. It's almost like there's loads of circular fortifications mm. going all the way up to what is a very small settlement at the top. And you're just thinking, 
why were they doing that? Because, I mean, I can understand the, the main one at the top sort of supports the hillside, creates a, layer, a fortified defense. Um, it's earthquake proof potentially compared right. to other walls. All right, fine. But they're literally everywhere. I mean, they're even in aqueducts. It just, I don't know. I just, yeah. it seemed strange to me. I just wasn't expecting it to be quite so many. And yeah. when I would read anything about it where people say, oh, they're not Roman, I'd be like, oh, whatever. Huh. You know, I don't, I try not to be too alternative because I really do look at all the peer-reviewed information before I speculate on anything alternative. But this was just, come on, hmm. not Roman. Yeah, the, the the I always thought about it like this. Like, we know all the Greeks um, would go to Egypt to learn. There's a lot of Egyptian uh, influence on the Greeks. And then I look at it as like a transfer. And then you have the Greeks. And then after the Greeks, you have a lot of influence on the Romans. Um, you know, from the Roman philosophers taking from all the Greek philosophers. And then even like... Um, uh, Marcus Aurelius rebuilding Eleusis uh, for the Eleusinian mysteries and things like that, trying to preserve those, um, um, you know, those uh, initi initiatory ritualistic aspects of the culture. And, you know, the, mm -hmm. the thing that's always fascinated me is, is it does seem like Rome, ancient Rome was more of like an extension of ancient Egypt or ancient uh, Greece as, compared to like how Egypt or Egypt and Greece were two distinct cultures while there might've been influence on Greece, you know, it's still very different, but I see Gr ancient Greece and Rome having a lot of crossover, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I see it. And they just say, well, Hellenization. Right. I don't know. I mean, really, I mean, even the Phoenicians, um, their deities, their amulets, Many of much of their material culture was very Egyptian in outward appearance, mm -hmm. and oh, because they were heavily influenced. All right, fine, but was it to what extent? I mean, how? I don't know. I always question this. Like, to what extent is it a cultural exchange or more of a, a stronger relationship? I don't know. Right. Because yeah. I find it strange that all the myths put the Romans um, back to to the Aegean or to Anatolia, but then the archaeology record, archaeological records is neither. They're just myths though. Right. But yeah. I don't get it. Why would you just make that up? <laughs> like, I understand they often want to give themselves, um, like I read this interesting book lately about um, how even within the classical period, lots of new city-states or that were, that were trying to become part of Athens, they were, they were giving themselves these really interesting back histories that were completely false just to be associated with the heroic age. So they had something in common with the sort of city-states they were trying to have a relationship with. All right, fine, I get that. Um, but the Romans seemed to be quite independent, feisty people. <laughs> Why did they want to give themselves that rather than just create their own? I, I can completely understand them copying it, but like making right. this strong relationship um, at the time. And, and they did. They, they even went to the Aegean. They, they sponsored the building of various monuments. They seemed to be pretty obsessed with the area. Why, why couldn't they just carve out their own culture and just sort of copy it or say they're the real one or whatever, you know, like right. in ancient history people do all the time. But they seem to want to have that connection. 
So I do think that sometimes mythology, there's more to it and legends than we like to believe. Yeah. I understand it's difficult to find the traces in the archaeological record. Often it is, fair enough. But, but I don't think they should be dismissed so freely either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Uh... You know, with the mythology thing, I think it's interesting because I, I, on one end, I look at like all the pantheon of gods and the way that it's treated by academics. Like you have these academics talk about this stuff as if it's fantastical or it's nonsense or, you know, like nobody's taking it seriously, but it's like, obviously these people were inspired um, to do a lot of the stuff by these gods or entities or whatever. Um so the fact that they don't give that aspect of it respect, there are some, you know, Egyptologists and stuff like that, but it seems to be like when you start talking about like pantheon of gods and religions and rituals, it turns more into like a anthropological endeavor as opposed to a archeological. But I think that it would be short-sighted to not look at that as the source of that. Like I said, like, I think like you said, there's something to mythology and I agree. I think that there's something, to mythology, to the pantheon of gods and things like that. Um, as where, you know, you have everybody believing Zeus and Poseidon, you know, Poseidon's controlling the ocean and wiping mm-hmm. boats out and this and that. And then Thales comes along and he says, no, 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 no. There's a natural explanation for this and here's what's going on um, kind of a thing. At the same time, uh, again, I don't think we should discount um the mind and the reason why people were associating those things. I'm not saying that those gods were real or anything like that, but I do think that there is something to all that. Um, especially when you look at like, were these person, were these, you know, were these attributes that actually some actual human beings had, um, like some ability to maybe forecast the weather, you know, or, you know, like Thales was able to calculate when the eclipse was going to happen, things like that, you know, like, and you start to attribute mm-hmm. those traits to gods and those might've been human beings before, or they might've been, who knows, we're talking about psychedelics earlier. They could have been psychedelic entities conveying some sort of message, um, uh, through some sort of metaphysical experience, um, things like that. So I, I do, I, I wonder, um, why, some of that stuff's not taken more seriously or at least analyzed in more of a connection to the physical, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I agree. Um, definitely, I think that it could be that people were seeing entities on these. Um, they were all high and just like, and that's where they got the idea from in the first place. Or it could be that everybody needs a hero. You know, people need a hero, especially in times where, you didn't buy your food from a supermarket where there was so much uncertainty. I think where you could get sick and you know, that was it. Um, So life expectancy was low. You do anything to control your environment, whether that's through ritual, whether that's through entering an altered state of consciousness and asking for advice from whatever you see in that altered state of consciousness, whether it's making the local strongest person into a hero and then saying that they could lift mountains and things. You know, it's, and I think as well with oral storytelling, it's usually quite elaborate because it needs to be remembered. So it's not always to be taken literally, but there still doesn't mean that it's completely a a false story. 
Right. It could just be a way of making sure that the next generation remember it. Right. The wilder, the better. Yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing is, too, is I think that they're, I've mentioned this many times on the podcast as well, whether you believe in these gods or entities or goddesses or religions or whatever, I think that there's an actual um, evolutionary purpose to it. Like, I, I think that, you know, for whatever reason, whether we need some sort of mystery to figure out, to move on to the next thing or whatever the case may be, there is an element of um, like dangling the carrot in front of ourselves, if you will. So oh, yeah, whether totally. it's subconscious or conscious or whatever, but I do think that that's important to at least look at because I, th- I think, I don't know. I, I just, like I said, I, I see, I see all these archeologists and the way they talk about this stuff. And it's just like, so like they wonder why more people don't pay attention to their work and why they're more, uh, attached to like uh ancient aliens or some sort of crazy fringe thing or whatever um and and again i think that they're missing the point and i would even point out too i know i shit on ancient aliens a lot but um that's where i found out about gobekli tepe i didn't learn about that in school you know we learned the Mm -hmm. standard 4500 year old um, Giza plateau and then you know or Sumerians and then the Giza plateau and then work your way through yeah. more modern traditional you know we didn't even really learn about like Malta or any of that stuff so it's like like what's going on I don't know I, I, I just I yeah, think that... I didn't I wasn't even into history at school it was just at home I was reading about um, megalith stone circles and things that my dad had mm. on his bookshelf but in school we were learning about so in Primary school, so the first school, there was a little bit, we touched on some Egyptian stuff. Right. Then it was more about Romans and World War II, Romans and World War II. Very interesting, important things to learn about, but they weren't my, like, passion. Right. Um, I think it's also just because there's so many Roman sites, right? So in England, when they want to take you on a school trip, there's just so many options. Um, But... I didn't know much about anything else. I learned about Malta probably about from a Graham Hancock book, actually. Hmm. Yeah, from uh, Underwater, I think it was. That's where I learned about the Maltese temples and then came to have a look at them myself. Hmm. I didn't know a great deal about the Sumerians. I didn't know. Um, I didn't know a great deal about silly things. I say silly. Like okay, um, the French Revolution. Really interesting time. Um, there was a lot of interesting things going on to do with um, Egyptian religion being revisited during that period and all sorts of really crazy stuff that I had no idea about, which I learned later in life. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm just sat there reading these things, which are all fact, thinking, why has no one ever talked about this? This is right. huge. Why does no one ever talk about so, yeah, I feel the same way, and, and like like I said, it's, it's it shows you know as much as we joke around, and I don't believe aliens built anything. Uh, I I believe Uf in UFOs, and obviously that's you know I I'm interested yeah. in all that stuff. I don't I don't believe that any beings came down and and built anything. I think it's all human ingenuity, and um, you know obviously we don't understand a lot of the techniques and the the technology and whatever they were using to build a lot of these sites. Uh, but some of them we do, you know, so I, I think that um, that's where the disconnect happens. But, yeah, I would just point out that as much as 
you know, archaeologists and anthropologists and, you know, they're all pissed and, you know, they hate ancient aliens. Well, it's like start getting that out there, you know, start doing YouTube channels, start doing shows on History Channel, you know. Um, I would watch a show on History Channel if it just showed Gobekli Tepe and all the ancient megalithic sites and didn't add the element of aliens building it and just talked about the sites and stuff like that. But there's not that but show doesn't know, exist, you know. So you remember there was all this stuff back in the day about oh, um, the aliens genetically engineered us and stuff. All right, that one yeah. I don't yeah. believe it, but it's it's a better argument than they just came and started building stone things. Right. Oh, I, like, I'll go for that. Because if I'm a highly advanced alien civilization, I might want to genetically mess around with right. um, another planet. But, sure. I, but stones, really? I'm just going to fly all the way there and build stones. Right. I don't think so. Yeah, Doesn't that's... And, you know, if you can build these smooth, beautiful, aerodynamic, anti-gravity crafts, you know, you can't make these stones look a little bit better. I mean, they look great. Don't get me wrong. For humans, they look great. Yeah. But for something <laughs> beyond, um, so that yeah, that would be my whole thing with that. But you know, like you mentioned, like I could be, you know, we talk about panspermia. We all might be aliens in in some regard. And um, the other thing that I find interesting too is, you know, we're talking about entheogens and psychedelic rituals and things like that. I could totally be on board that humans have been being brought along or inspired from ancient times or something like that through metaphysical practices and altered states and things like that. I'm on board with that. I find that interesting. And I've had my own weird experiences with that. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that, I think know, I've seen some aliens when I've had two bottles of wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it comes down to like, I think that there's a disconnect between the fringe communities with the stuff mm -hmm. and the academic stuff. Um, but the academics don't realize they're just not making it interesting enough. And they're not talking about the aspects of these sites that people want to know about because they're so worried about their own, you know, work or whatever they're fascinated with. And I think that science and archaeology, whatever, should serve the public. You know, it shouldn't be. This yeah. is something uh, astronomer Avi Loeb has said on our podcast when he because he is looking yeah. for signs of alien life and extraterrestrials and things like that. So science should be serving the public interest and not their own interest and i think that that's part of the problem so yeah i agree and i think as well everyone loves a bit of speculation and i'm not you don't necessarily have to say so like i go through an, a, a peer-reviewed paper and i look for the gaps and i look for where the actual authors have said we don't know why this is right and then I say, okay, so I, when I do speculate, it's based on where there really is a mystery, not where I say there's a mystery when I haven't even read the, the evidence on that site. But the problem is that then we kind of fill that hole with a bit of speculation because everybody wants that speculation. And, you, you know, you do such find connections and you look at geological papers, archaeology papers, you can look at anything from different disciplines because we're independent researchers, so it's okay to do that. Right. And I think that they're kind of stuck in terms of creating a new um, hypothesis can be quite terrifying. It still needs to be within certain parameters to be accepted. I think that any kind of wild speculation or popular books, are they're never really there because they don't want to... Speculation might appear too sensationalist. So, and, and everybody wants to keep their job and their 
and to be taken seriously for every new piece of academic research that they do, which I completely understand. Right. So I think that might be why that's sometimes the case. But I also don't like to dismiss the work. I, I use all of these experts' work as a basis sure. for my own research or for my scripts where I'm educating people on my channel because they've done wonderful work. And often it's just not that well known. They're you just find so, a new piece of research and it's just like, so, wow. It's, it's, yeah, they're just so narrow-minded. Uh, and the scientific, um, or the news will pick up something like the Cahokia Plaza. It'll do a quick summary and move on. And it's actually a really interesting find. It needs to be bigged up. It needs to be talked about more. It need, And then you need to speculate. You need to say, okay, so if this is the case, what does this mean for mounds in general? And do we, do we think that this could could be something we find everywhere? And, and, you know, you need to sort of keep going further with it. But everybody's too afraid to speculate. Press yeah. releases are very dry. Press conferences are very dry. The reports on the academic papers are very dry. And that's where we step in, I think, as independent researchers and entertainers to some extent. Mm -hmm. We go a bit further sometimes, or we find connections. Or like, I will mention a few things. Like, I looked at Gobekli Tepe, and I mentioned the fact that alcohol was found there, and there was a school court found there, and I turned it into a video about alcohol-fueled school courts. <laughs> In reality, they're two separate pieces of research. You don't necessarily need to put them together, but right. it was, I thought, an entertaining way of doing it. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. like... I mean, the other thing, too, is, is I think you nailed it, and I think that... Well, I don't think that they would admit it. I think a lot of those, the academics, are actually jealous that they can't step out and do it. Maybe some aren't. They're so brainwashed to thinking that they have to do the slow, incremental scientific method aspect of it where, you know, it's this very specific, narrow-minded, you know, pursuit kind of a thing. And like you said, I think that there's something to be gained from that as well, and I think that we should use that information and data and... um kind of look at it but you know i don't i think that that's why people we were mentioning graham hancock i think that's why people hate graham hancock or because he could take all that data and kind of give a broad overhead view of what he thinks is going on or, or lay out a hypothesis or a theory or not even just him randall carlson whoever you want to say within these yeah. fields and lay something out and i think that it, it ruffles the feathers of the academics because they have to stay very disciplined and narrow-minded in what they're doing and i think that that just that's where but it's like, come on. I mean, I feel like we need more polymaths and complex science, you know, thinkers and things like that, complexity scientists and things like that, because mm. we're just we're just at a point now where it's like, what's, you know, all this stuff's interesting, but let's start taking some chances here, you know? Yeah, everyone wants to know what the solve the mystery. And if you do not kind of offer an explanation or a possible explanation it gets filled with ancient aliens mm -hmm. it gets Ali filled aliens with of the gaps and even like when i watch that in the past i've seen a few episodes where every single statement that's made in the first 10 minutes i can debunk because it'll say something like oh because like the do dolmens of ireland that are ten thousand years old. they're not ten thousand years old what are you talking right. about and it's like there isn't even any basic facts i mean if there was lots of facts and then they said we think it was aliens i don't mind that why not right. speculate away um but when you actually are getting some of the actual dating wrong and the basic facts wrong within the, the script i get quite annoyed with that um mm. 
where are the researchers? What are they doing? <laughs> Just making up numbers? Like, I don't know. Um, but that's why, but it doesn't matter because it's a sensationalist thing that people aren't really looking at that. And like you say, the one good thing about it is they've opened up um, the public consciousness about certain sites. Not just Gobekli Tepe. I, I once watched an episode and heard something and thought, wait. And I looked it up and I, I wasn't familiar with that particular area. So, mm. you know, there's, there's that. Too. Listen, History Channel, if you're listening to us right now, give Laura and I a show where we just talk about these ancient structures with no aliens and it'll be one of your most popular shows. Yeah, totally. That, that's my totally. pitch. That's the pitch. We're, we're promised to be really funny too. So. Yeah. Oh, I'll add some comedy in there. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get something going. Uh, oh, you could play your guitar. <laughs> there we go. Play the guitar at the. We're gonna summon entities at the megalithic sites on uh, psychoactive compounds, and uh, that's part of the show. Uh, but no, <laughs> but no. I, I I like I said. I think that um, I think what you're doing is important because you are highlighting the gray areas, if you will, or the areas that aren't. Um, set in stone with with the data or the research Um, and a lot of this stuff's going to be proven wrong or thrown out or revised in the future anyway so again I think it's important to throw out different even if it's speculation or whatever but you do a good job like there's a lot of you know alternative archaeology channels on YouTube or fringe archaeology channels but I think that you do what I would be doing if I was doing what you were doing which would be looking at the evidence of what's there and then okay wh- where's the blind spots okay oh you yeah. don't have an answer for this what are possible explanations for it so i yeah. love what you're doing because i would be doing the same thing and i'm trying to do separate to that proper research so i can come up with m- much more comprehensive theories on uh-huh. the which explains certain data points that i've collected but i can't really um do that yet and people keep asking me to and i'm like listen i'm coming to it but sometimes it's actually quite hard to find the information that you want to. So a lot of um, academic stuff is not open source. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is that, so I'll be walking to, I was walking to a men here in Sardinia and I walked up a hill and I felt like the hill was an old waterfall. Mm. It seemed to have all the erosion um, markers of a waterfall. And when you got to the bottom, there was a stream and a valley, which was really tiny, but would have been much bigger at some point in history. I don't know which point. So I tried to find geological papers on that area because I thought, I don't think we can explain that men here that's five and a half thousand years old without knowing the geology of that area at the time. Right. I couldn't find anything. Nothing. Not in Italian, not in English. Uh, so it probably was a waterfall, but it could have been hundreds of thousands of years ago for all I know. Probably not during the Neolithic, but I just can't find that information. There's been no research into that. So... You know, it is really hard to explain certain phenomena if you don't, if there hasn't been all of these different um, pieces of research put together interdisciplinary on that particular site. And you're often missing these data points. Have you uh, thought about, like, I know you can get, like, I don't know if it's a LiDAR app or some sort of small device. You should, have you looked into doing, like, some sort of LiDAR on some of these sites? Not yet. People keep asking me that. I don't even know how. <laughs> Again, I know that there's a way to do it uh, on a smaller scale. Obviously, they can do it from planes and things like that, which they yeah. do when they fly over like um, 
South America and Central America and find those sites covered in trees and things like uh-huh. that. Like massive but they do light. have, uh, I, I'll look, I'll look, I'll find it for you and I'll send it to you because I think that that would benefit what you're doing for sure. I also need to buy a drone. I know this because um, I would be great to have some drone footage. When it comes to Sardinia, um, I follow um, this guy on Rico who does a tour guiding and he's got a really amazing Instagram page where he features all his pictures and a lot of them are drone, just drone videos and drone photography. And he lets me use his stuff and credit him. Mm, that's awesome. But really, and I mean, because I'm not like an expert at that. And if I do start to do it, I'm sure it'll take me a while to get the hang of it. But um, I'm not making pretty stuff like he is. For me, it's more to collect data, to have a, a database of all the different places I've been to. And the aerial views really help. So I do think I should learn that as well. Um, LIDAR and drones should definitely be on my list to expand yeah, I, what I, I think, can do with my brand. I think it would really, yeah, it would add a different dimension to what you're doing. Uh, not that you need it, but I think that, um, look, who doesn't love some good drone footage of some megalithic sites, right? I mean, It really I mean, helps you get an understanding. Yeah. I mean, when I went to that... Uh, well, we were talking about the Pozzo Sac, um, the sacred well of Santa Cristina in Sardinia. You, when you stood next to it, you do not know there's a keyhole shape. You right. only know it from the drone footage. So when I did a video on it, even though I'd been there and I had photographs of it, I just thought, I can't do this video justice without getting some drone footage, which is mm. then when I reached out to Enrico to borrow his. But um, yeah, so, some sites you just you wouldn't be able to understand the magnitude of them if you can't see them from the sky. And I'm Malta, I asked for permission to film. Um, and they said I could film drone with a drone because mm. there was a photographer I knew that could do drone footage at Gigantia, but it has to be from a distance at an angle. You're not allowed to actually fly over the structure. Right. Um, and then I, I looked online. There's actually quite a lot of drone footage of Gigantia. So I said, can't I do like Hajar-Eam or one of those other ones that's got the tent over it? and just yeah. do lower drone footage. They said, no, absolutely not. Like, it's completely protected. You're not allowed to bring any kind of drone in there. And I was like, because the problem is that the aerial photography done on those sites before the tent protected tents were put up is super old. Like, it's ages ago. Right. And it doesn't necessarily get every angle. And it's got me thinking, oh, I really wonder what's there and what's there. But you can't do it now because of the protective tents, which they need because of erosion. So, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and you one can't last... just squeeze a drone in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you fly a drone into House Affiliani and just go down through all the little nooks and crannies. Um, I want to ask you one more thing before we start to wrap it up. Um, you know, there's a whole little community. Shout out to Ancient History Criticisms. Go check out uh, his channel if you haven't already. What do you think about this nub nub stuff, nubs on all these different, you know, like they're they're known as... I guess in mainstream is lifting bosses. That's what they were used to like lift or carry yeah. things around. But there's ones that don't make sense from that context. Yeah. Um, you know, so like, have you I looked know. into it? Like, what do you think's going on there? Yeah. I look at all, all of the pictures that the nubs community put online and the video footage. Um, Ziggy Dan often messages me when I'm on a, a trip and says, any nubs, any nubs on this trip? And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> Yes, and actually I went to a temple last week and I found nubs, plenty of nubs, but they are in the mainstream literature. It says uh, lifting bosses, yeah. But, um, but yeah, we were, 
I don't know. It's strange because the ones that are really randomly placed, I, I thought they look a bit like Morse code. Maybe there's a language encoded in it. Yeah. But that doesn't seem that likely. Then the ones that I saw last week, they're just regular shapes. They probably are part of the construction. Okay, fine. Um, then I saw some on some steps and I thought maybe they were part of like a, maybe water ran down the steps and they were designed to make the water go a certain way. Like, They're even you know, in some of the Greek amphitheaters, like where the, the foot, the foot, uh, like where you would, you know, the different like levels there, the mm. step ups in the, in the amphitheaters, there's some on those, which that doesn't make sense either. You know, like, no, yeah, I don't know. It's, a weird it's weird one. and so then i thought maybe that was for water or something and i thought no that doesn't make sense because then why would those ones be there oh they're so strange they're so strange and i i don't have an explanation for that um i do i'm starting to build up my own sort of explanations for men here but then again you know you you start to find anomalies with that too it's diff it's difficult yeah um but nubs they're really strange that's that's for sure. Because like I, the the only thing I have a problem with is if you're building this amazing megalithic structure and everything's perfect or close to perfect and there's a lot of detail and things like that, how come you didn't chisel or sand that down mm -hmm. or whatever? Like why did you leave that? You know, like that just doesn't yeah, make any sense used, to me. If it was used to push things into place or, or whatever, yeah, why leave it? Even I said that about the circular spheres that are at the front of a lot of the temples. And one was actually found underneath the megalith, so at Tarshim. So the archaeologists think that these spheres were for rolling the megaliths into place. But I still have a problem with that because these were very organized people. Mm -hmm. So you're saying to me, Gigantia, which was in use for a thousand years, they rolled the megaliths into place and just left the, the balls lying around even though everything else was so perfectly finished and beautiful and like plastered and painted the walls makes no sense. I don't think that's what they were for, but I don't know what they were for. Uh, the one that's under the megalith could be an anomaly of some kind. I mean, it's not like they've gone into all of them to find them and they're not necessarily, even when they have excavated place, some of them, they haven't found them everywhere. So I don't know. I really question that. Yeah. they were for rolling into place. Don't know. Yeah. No, there's a lot of weird stuff. Um mentioning balls, like what about those balls in uh Puerto Rico and different uh -huh. other Mesoamerican sites that have those like super um super ac or I mean they're like polished sphericals or polished spheres. Were those used, you know, in some sort of recreation of astral alignments or you know like i don't know what do you think about those i just don't know <laughs> i've read about them they're huge yeah and i just don't know yeah um it's really difficult to say yeah not there's so many anomalous um <laughs> bits and pieces isn't there when you get into it what's your next it's trip crazy. what do you where do you go into next i don't i uh i don't know I haven't planned because now we're, when the winter sets in in the Mediterranean, I hibernate because I hate mm. winter. How cold does the it get there? The Mediterraneans are like, I don't know, mostly it's always in between 10 and 15 Celsius. So like, I don't know what the conversion not, is to Fahrenheit. Um, I'm an American. We don't, we don't know about Celsius. What, 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 what's Fahrenheit for I'm zero? looking it up right now. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, I, I always get confused with this. Okay, so it's 50 degrees. So 
uh, yeah the 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 formula is whatever the difference is times nine fifths plus thirty two sounds kind of complicated uh yeah but yeah fifty degrees just... here <laughs> yeah but uh, it's but it's but fifty is cool here, yeah fifty is cool no, but they don't would... they don't come with heating remember you don't have heating. Oh, okay. Houses don't come with heating. Sure, I get what you're um, saying. They, not in Malta, anyway. So, I mean, we have some heating sources in the house, but it's it's not it's not like. Um, and you're around like the water, you, the you know, the waters. Yeah, the water makes everything cooler too. Um, when you go to the UK, and obviously because there's not many trees on Malta or hills, super high hills. So it gets sharp winds too that can make it a bit worse. It rarely goes to freezing and there's, you don't get snow or anything like that. Not like in England where you have to defrost your car before you can leave in the morning and things like that. But but you don't have the central heating in the cozy houses that you have in England either. So the c lack of coziness is what annoys me because I make the house as cozy as I possibly can. And then I go to a restaurant and the restaurant won't have heating. <laughs> And it's like 10 degrees and you like, seriously, it's you got to go to like a brick oven and, pizza place or something to get that, that warmth yeah. from that, uh, that oven. So that annoys me a little bit about Mediterranean. And sometimes when you travel around, you can find that as being a bit of a problem. So not that it's like that everywhere in the Mediterranean, but it can happen. So I, I don't really do much. I, I like to travel around the Mediterranean. I'm trying to do videos on many places, but my core research, the stuff that I'm working on a book on, is in the Mediterranean, Central Mediterranean. So I need to do more trips on that. And I I need to um, do, wait till the spring until I'm comfortable to travel. Where, where, are you go like, where would you like to go? I want to check out another uh, um, Etruscan site in on the west coast of mainland Italy. Um, I want to check out the Cyclopean Walls of Santa Severa. I want to do Greece again. When I went to the Oracle of Delphi before, I didn't take any pictures because I was just on holiday and I'd never really bothered. No, you got to get like pictures. So now I want to go back and do lots of footage of that area. I want to go to Knossos because I've been to Crete, but I was young. I haven't, haven't really much memory of it. Um, if you go to Eleusis, my list I, is fairly extensive. If, if you go to Eleusis, I've got some specific places I want you to take some pictures of too. So let Ooh, me know. Okay. If, let me know if you ever yeah, go there because because there are some interesting things that I know that are there that I would like to get some some pictures of. Um, I mean, I like these trips because they're quite short in the sense yeah. of there's not long flights, but even from Malta, often there aren't direct flights, so you have to change and things. I mean, just going to Sicily last week, I thought this is going to be great. It's just half an hour flight. And then I pick up a car and I booked a hotel half an hour from the airport and it's not a big airport. I'm going to be there so fast. <laughs> oh, so much went wrong, which if anyone wants to see my vlog that I did instead of my normal history video, I did a vlog about that trip. It was just <laughs> one thing after another. How's so, the... How's yeah. the food? What's the food like in Malta? Is it like in, in Italian influenced or like what's the cuisine like different? Br British, it's quite British. Is it? It's a mixture of British and Italian and Maltese. Yeah. Interesting. So there's some specific dishes which are Maltese. And then um, there's a lot of Italian influence and there's a lot of British influence. Okay. I, I mean, I can get pretty much everything when I go to a restaurant similar to a menu in England, for example. When yeah. you go to Italy, it's very Italian. Sure. 
I guess. So it's it's a bit different here. It's not really like that. So what it's they've very got like mixed bangers and mashed pizza or like a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just very cosmopolitan. I'm joking. Like you yeah. can get yeah, you can get a bit of everything. Like if you have a steak, they'll do it. It's often you know the British way with pepper sauce, but then you can also get the Italian style with tagliata. You can get loads of different kinds of pasta. Um, it's it's very mixed. Okay. I think there's a lot of influences over the past few hundred years. So cool. Interesting stuff. Well, let's wrap it up here. Um, as always, you are welcome back on the show anytime. We'll have you back on soon. Um, and keep doing what you're doing. Congratulations on the uh, monetization. And um, I really, you. I really love your videos and you know, you just have such a, a great outlook on it and such, you know, you, you you look at the mysteries while keeping your integrity, which is something I always try to do. Um, and it's, it's not easy yeah. sometimes. Right. So like keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I find it fascinating. Um, and I always keep my eye out for your, your psychoactive compound segments. Cause those are my favorite ones. The, that, that Actually, I was oh. just reading an in a paper on another one, which I don't know if you've seen, if you, I'm going to do a video on that, and then you can tell me if you've heard of that one. I'm sure you probably have. Okay. But, yeah. Well, I'll keep looking out for those. And if anybody hasn't already, please go subscribe to Laura's channel. It's called Megalith Hunter. I have the link down below. She's on Instagram and also Twitter. And like I said, mm -hmm. I see Sandy's in here. Shout out to Sandy. I would like to do a Twitter space with Laura and Sandy as my co-hosts where we will go through um, and talk about all these mysteries because I think that that would be super yeah. fun. So um, look for that in the future. And yeah, thank you so much, Laura. I look forward to your book. Um, I know you probably just started working on it, but whenever you get done, um, I will be uh, ready to read it. So um, thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Just keep doing it. Uh, and if anybody's interested and wants to support Mind Escape, just click the link tree link down below. We've got a merch store. Actually, uh, while we're talking about Megaliths, I actually recreated the Portara of Naxos onto a T-shirt, um, kind of a composite of a bunch of different angles, so check that out. Um, also, we've got a Patreon. We've done some Patreons with um, Laura in the past. Go check that out if you like Randall Carlson. We've got Patreons with him. We've got Patreons with pretty much a lot of people that we've had on the podcast, so go check that out. Um, what else? Oh yeah. The easiest way to support the show is just leave us a nice five star review on Apple podcast or Spotify. We really appreciate that. Shout out to old vet Shane, um, or old vet symposium. Shane, our producer, he is at wounded warriors in Boston. Uh, enjoy your trip, my man. And shout out to Maurice. He will be back on the 30th for the Dr. Rick Strassman episode. And that's it. We love everybody. You know, stay safe out there, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Bye.